Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Pontorado about his book, A Psychobiography of Bobby Fischer. In it, the Fordham professor attempts to understand the mind of arguably the world's most famous chess player. But first, WFUV's Vididiana Castellan reports on a group of elementary and middle school students in the Bronx whose meet and greet with Yankee shortstop Derek Jeter encourages them to immerse themselves in reading. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Yankee Stadium. Please direct your attention to the area behind home plate and welcome the all-star students from Immaculate Conception School. It was a crowning moment for a group of students at the Immaculate Conception School, a trip to Yankee Stadium and the opportunity to meet their sports idol, Derek Jeter. It all started with a proposition from their principal, Sister Patrice Owens. After Derek Jeter made baseball history with 3,000 hits last year, she encouraged the students to read more than 3,000 books. Those who read the most during the school year would make their way to Yankee Stadium. After eight months, the school as a whole read over 4,000 books. And nine of the 500 students who read the most are in the stands at Yankee Stadium, celebrating. Eighth grader Taylor Wilson is among them. At first I was overwhelmed when Sister Patrice came, but then I started thinking that I can do this because I already read a lot before. So then I was just recording what I was reading, so it wasn't that hard. So I know that you all are people who've read a lot of things in our class, but I'm wondering, since you've read so many books, would you recommend all of them, or have you read some books that you wouldn't, you wouldn't recommend to your classmates? The road for Taylor and the other winning students began here, in Ms. Harmon's classroom. Today, they're discussing some of the books they read since the start of the school year. Ms. Harmon says the challenge has made a difference in student achievement. Reading stamina has gone up, uh, especially with the state tests and the common core standards that emphasize reading. Students really need to have an ability to read, read quickly, read for understanding, and read a wide variety of literature. 13-year-old Daniel Figueroa says he's read over 10 books since September. It wasn't enough to win the challenge, but admits he always had his eye on the prize. When I heard about the Derek Jeter challenge, I'm like, oh, man, now I got to read. Because I, I used to read like one or two books a day or not even a week. So once the Derek Jeter challenge came on, I was like, okay, it's Derek Jeter. I have to be his record, 3,000 books. I can make it at like 30, 300, or maybe 3,000. Yankee Fever runs high at Immaculate Conception School. Yankee posters hang on walls throughout the school, side by side with student reviews of books they've read, books like The Hunger Games and The Twilight Series. Sixth grader Ramon Centeno is one of the nine students who won the Jeter Challenge. He read close to 20 books. Ramon says the competition has made him a better student. Well, I definitely had a problem with writing. With my stories, I wouldn't add as much details. The lines wouldn't flow. So when I started reading, I started picking up on things. I started adding more details. It's made the writing process a lot clearer. Judy Braski is a literacy consultant who works with teachers at the Immaculate Conception School. She says the Jitter Challenge was fun to watch in action. My favorite thing is to see... And I tell them, my favorite thing is to see that you're, you're walking with your book. You take, finish lunch and you take out your book. Or their book is in their desk and they're sneaking because they don't want to listen to They'd rather be reading. How, how much better is that? Back at Yankee Stadium, the hard work is paying off for the nine student all-stars in the Derek Jeter Challenge. 
and here to congratulate the children on being such great readers is Yankees shortstop number two, Derek Jeter. I'm Biri Diana Castellan, WFUV News. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Now a conversation with Dr. Joseph Pontorado. His book, A Psychobiography of Bobby Fischer, explores the life and mental downfall of one of the world's most famous chess players. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So what about a young Bobby Fischer made people embrace him? Well, keep in mind, in 1972, we were in the middle of the Cold War. The Russians dominated chess, which was an intellectual uh, endeavor. And here comes a lonely, self-assured, independent, autonomous young boy, Bobby Fischer, who just captivated the world's attention by challenging the Russian hegemony of elite chess skill. Now, before that, chess was known, but it wasn't as popular. Is that correct? Not popular at all. New York City and the United States is a big sports country. So kids my age, I was 14 at the time Bobby defeated Boris Spassky in Reykjavik, Iceland. Then all of a sudden, on the news and on public television with Shelby Lyman, we hear Bobby Fischer is challenging a Russian. And this was the Cold War and Sputnik, and it was very exciting and a, a big competition for us, so we just got riveted to his story. So the atmosphere at that time was us versus them. Right. And Bobby Fischer being one of us, as in the United States, versus them. Right, a lone hero against the full Soviet-dominated chess uh, mastery. Summarize Bobby's chess accomplishments. What made him so popular? Well, Bobby clearly was a chess genius. At 13, he was U.S. junior champion playing against masters in their 30s, 40s. At 14, he was the total U.S. national champion, and he won that championship eight consecutive uh, tournaments that he played in. So here you have a 14-year-old who is beating the masters and even grandmasters in the United States and starting to you know, want to challenge the Russian grandmasters. Then at 15, in an international tournament, Bobby did so well that he got the title of International Grandmaster at 15. And at that time, that was the youngest person in history to get that uh, elite title. And think about this, Robin. Becoming a chess grandmaster at 15 would be like a 15-year-old becoming a U.S. state senator. That's how rare it was. It was almost an unbelievable, indescribable achievement in terms of Bobby, particularly in the U.S., which did not give much support or training to chess players. What is a psychobiography? Because that is exactly what your book is, a psychobiography of Bobby Fischer. So define psychobiography. A psychobiography is an individual intensive psychological study of an individual person. Now, there are many biographies about Bobby Fischer that talk about his chess talent, his chess tournaments, his chess career, his general life, what happened to him. A psychobiography delves deeper to understand why, what led to his perhaps mental illness, what led to his isolation, what also led to his genius in terms of genetic predispositions, intensive training. So a psychobiography is a layer deeper than a general biography by looking at the psychology of what made the person tick. Dr. Punterato, what evidence was there that Bobby had a psychological disorder? Okay. First, let me provide a caveat that uh, I am a psychologist, and Bobby Fisher was not a patient of mine, so ethically it's not appropriate for me to proffer a formal diagnosis. However, there is evidence in the literature and in videos and through interviews of, of Bobby's family and just in the general literature that Bobby always exhibited odd behavior, was different, uh, lacked some social structures and social relationships that were 
sort of comment to Pierce's own age. So there was always some sense that he might be a little off or a little different than your average player or average person of that age. Now, that's not uncommon in a prodigious talent because you get so obsessed with that skill, in Bobby's case, chess. Uh, But over the years, he became more and more isolated, started to exhibit more and more bizarre behavior. So there was a sense that perhaps Bobby was becoming increasingly mentally ill. What examples of this behavior do you mean? Well, one is, you know, after the tournament, isolating himself, his uh, difficult relationships with almost anyone he met. Uh, Bobby would often break relations and feel that folks were out to get him, taking advantage of him. He was suspicious of others. And there is good reason for some of that behavior, given he was very famous and people were following him around. And he could not maintain stable relationships over the long term. And that's one sign of perhaps some psychological difficulty. And that that increased later in life when he left chess and I think lost the structure and support that's involved in the chess world in the chess tournaments, and his behavior became increasingly difficult and perhaps at times bizarre. So as a doctor, when does it cross over from being just odd, strange behavior to a mental disorder? I think when it significantly impairs someone's functioning, and I think we see that in Bobby's case. He was not able to maintain healthy relationships. He could not maintain his career, so he couldn't get along with any tournament organizers. He had many demands that were really impossible to meet. He had so many So I think uh, this behavior sort of isolated him further, and I think it's uh, out of the normal range of behavior for uh, even a chess genius. Was Bobby Fischer ever formally diagnosed with a mental disorder? No, he was not. Bobby's mother, Regina Fisher, was concerned about her son Bobby, and on two separate occasions she did take him to see a psychiatrist. And, but those were short-lived, maybe one or two sessions. We're not really sure because we don't have the documentation on that. Uh, But Bobby, you know, would have nothing to do with that because it took him away from chess. And his mom, you know, was working many hours as a single mother. So I think she was concerned for her son, tried to get him help, but it never materialized. So he never got the psychological treatment and counseling support that maybe would have really helped him and prepared him for the, the stress of fame and what was to come. So let's talk a little bit about Bobby Fisher's mom. Um, what was she like and what was their relationship like? Now, Regina Fisher is a story unto herself. Regina Fisher uh, was born in 1913. She's from a, a Russian-Polish Jew- Jewish heritage. Uh, she studied medicine in Moscow from 1933 to 1938. She was multilingual, spoke six languages. She was studying medicine but had to leave Moscow where she met her husband, Hans Gerhard Fischer, during the Stalin rise and the, the dangers to uh, Russian citizens, the folks of Jewish heritage, and she moved to Paris. Then she immigrated back, and uh, while in the U.S., she met Bobby's father, Paul Nemenyi, who we were pretty sure was his father. And then at that point, because she was a, a single parent back in the 40s, it was very stressful. Uh, she came under suspicion of the FBI of being a, a Russian spy. Because she was so smart and Because educated. she was smart, because she was educated, had scientific training in Russia. This was the World War II. There was a, a, a fervor and fear of communism during the McCarthy era. And uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, I was able to gain the 994-page FBI file on Regina Fisher. So she was followed by the FBI beginning in 1942, and she was followed for 30 years. And I have all of those records. And the stress of FBI following her, interviewing her family, people, her neighbors, her employers, made it very difficult for her to find stable employment. 
So she was very peripatetic, moving from city to city, from place to place, from job to job. Uh, so Regina was an interesting character in terms of both her love for Bobby, her over-involvement in Bobby's life, and her just her own struggles financially. So what was Bobby and Regina's relationship like? It was always at odds. Bobby was strong-willed as a child, and there are reports in all the biographies about that. Give me an example of what he would do as a kid, you know, to show that strong will. Well, he would refuse to do anything except play chess, so he would not come to dinner. His mother would set up a board in the bathtub across the bath so that he would take a bath, and he would set up the chess pieces in the bathtub and stay there for two or three hours until Regina had to sort of pull him out. He would not come home when Regina wanted to come home. He would be at chess clubs till 12 o'clock at night or playing chess in Washington Square Park (laughs) while still a teenager. And so Regina had a lot of trouble because Bobby was so independent, so fiercely autonomous. And Regina had to work many hours. She was raising two children. At the time, there was stigma of being a single parent. It's not like it was today where you have lots of support services. She, I don't think she wanted folks to know who Bobby's real father was because having an affair back then was not really as acceptable as it is now. You know. So let's, let's talk about his father a little bit. So she was married at one point right. while she was where? Tell me about that story. Okay, she, uh, in 1932, she moved to Germany. Her brother Max was stationed there in the Navy. And while there she met uh, her future husband, Gerhard Fischer, who was a scientist as well. Gerhard got a job in Moscow in 1933, and Regina moved to Moscow to be with Gerhard Fischer, where they married in 1933. And while Gerhard was working at the Moscow Brain Institute as a physicist, Regina was studying medicine from 1933 to 1938, although she didn't finish her medical degree at that point because she had to flee to Paris to escape the Stalin purges. But in 1939, Regina and Joan came back to the U.S. where it was safer, Gerhardt was not allowed to immigrate to the U.S. because he was a German citizen, he was a scientist. So Regina came back with Joan alone to New York, where her father was living, and uh, then she eventually started school at the University of Colorado, and that's where she met, we believe, her her lover and Bobby's uh, biological father, Dr. Paul Felix Nemenyi, who was also a brilliant uh, scientist. There's actually a theorem named after him in terms of physics and engineering, in the FBI reports, there's a lot of interaction about Nemenyi and uh, Regina Fisher and Nemenyi being Bobby's actual biological father. So now we have um, Regina, Joan, who is Bobby Fisher's uh, big sister, mostly who took care of him because his mother was working quite often. How did Bobby Fisher even get involved or get introduced to chess? Good question. Uh, as you said, Joan, you know, she's such a, a hero story in herself because she watched uh, Bobby a lot. The mom worked sometimes 24 hours if it was a night shift in in the hospital as a nurse. So you had Joan, who I I talk about as the ballast of a seesaw, because Bobby was very challenging. He wanted to do his own thing, and she had to watch after him, make sure he fed, make sure he did his homework, although he was in and out of schools because he didn't like school. And, you know, Regina was a very forceful personality, had her involvement with with her intelligista friends, was involved with the Communist Party for a while, and... And it was Joan who really stabilized. It was the anchor of the family at five and six years old. So Joan, at one point, trying to occupy Bobby, uh, bought him a, a, a chess set, for, I think for a dollar, one of those little plastic sets, in the candy store when they were living in Manhattan at the time. They eventually moved to Brooklyn, where most of Bobby's story unfolds. So Regina taught Bobby the moves at six. And, you know, they played a little bit. Bobby left the game and then came back and started to play more seriously at eight. 
Then at nine, Bobby talks about he started to really study chess and read magazines, and he started to learn different languages to read the foreign chess magazines because they had better chess than in the U.S. So at nine, it just captivated him, and he became obsessed. By 11, he told his first biographer, Dr. Frank Brady, I just got good at 11. So from 11 on, chess became Bobby's life. It was very hard for him to focus on anything else, including school. And then by you know, 11, 12, by 13, the chess community in New York knew Bobby had a chance to be gifted. They knew he was a prodigy. They weren't thinking then that he could, that he could beat Russians, but they thought he could be perhaps an American champion. And each year, as he started to win the U.S. national championships, first at 14, and then the eight consecutive tournaments he played in, they thought he might uh, have a chance to be the first American to be a former world champion and defeat a Soviet. And the Soviets had held the title for 35 years at that point. Mm. So he ended up um, surpassing everybody's expectations at that time. And he ended up being embraced by this community. But there was also, as you said, some sort of tension there because he did have these little quirky, odd characteristics. Did Outside of Regina um, trying to get him help by going to psychologists and psychiatrists, did anybody else ever try to, to say, hey, this goes beyond odd and we need to get this little boy some help? Well, many people speculated that Bobby had some challenges and should get some intervention. But it's interesting. Uh, there's a scene that, that's talked about in, in uh, Frank Brady's book, in my book, uh, about a meeting at the Marshall Chess Club where Bobby, because of his odd behavior, some of the senior chess masters at the club and officials said, maybe we should get Bobby some help. Uh, some of the members said, but if we get him counseling and therapy, it might distract him from chess, and maybe we should just leave him alone. Better chess than something else. It's a, it's a healthy activity. Keeps him occupied. He has mentors in the chess community, sort of father figures. Uh, let's not play with his mind and get him into therapy. Dr. Joseph Pantorato, what type or types of mental illness do you think Bobby Fischer had? Another good question, Robin. And again, I want to emphasize that I, I was not a patient of mine, and ethically it would be inappropriate to formally diagnose him. But it is, through your psychobiography and through your um, right. extensive research, you were able to come up with uh, theories. Right. Correct. One thing that is appropriate to do as a psychologist is to evaluate previous diagnoses that have been attributed to Bobby. And there are a number of those in the newspapers and the literature and previous biographies. So some folks thought that he may be paranoid schizophrenic. But, uh, you know, doing a differential diagnosis with the evidence, I don't think Bobby suffered from schizophrenia. Others say he may, he may have Asperger's disorder, you know, not having good relationships with peers, not really being in touch with affect. And though he does meet some of the criteria of Asperger's, not enough in terms of all the necessary categories to, to achieve that diagnosis. Uh, others thought that he might have some paranoid tendencies. And of all of the diagnoses that have been put out there in the literature, many of them by non-psychologists, Bobby, I think, fit more the diagnostic categories of, of paranoid personality disorder. Again, I'm not formally diagnosing him that, but he did have uh, many of the attributes that people associate with paranoia and paranoid personality. So what are those, uh, from a clinical point of view, define that for me? Well, generally... Paranoid personality is characterized by a number of uh, traits that characterize the person's behavior in a number of settings. One is suspects without sufficient bias that others are exploiting him or harming him or deceiving him in some way. Uh, the person is often preoccupied with unjustified doubts about the loyalty or trustworthiness of friends, of family. And Bobby often would make a good friend and then uh, the friend might say something to a reporter and Bobby would eliminate this person from his life and never speak to him again. 
Third is becomes reluctant to confide in others for unwarranted fear the information will be misused to hurt him or her. Sometimes reads hidden uh, demeaning or threatening meanings in benign remarks or behavior. And Bobby was very suspicious and cautious in that way. Uh, other characteristics, you bear grudges and you become unforgiving at the slightest slight that other people don't think is really mm-hmm. a slight, but you take it so seriously that you break off all contact. Easily offended. Easily offended and you don't forgive. So those are some of the characteristics that in the diagnostic manual would be associated uh, with par- paranoid personality disorder. And Bobby met many of these. Now, weren't some of Bobby Fisher's uh, paranoia justified? You had the FBI following his mom. You do have him being a celebrity at such a young age that you're still trying to grow and know about yourself. So how much of his diagnosis or how much of his paranoia wasn't warranted? I guess the balance point when justified paranoia becomes a mental illness is when it starts to really interfere with you maintaining quality of life. Now, keep in mind, you know, you're right. Regina was being followed by the FBI, and she cautioned Bobby, Bobby, if any men come to talk to you back then, they were just male agents, uh, don't say anything to them. And also keep in mind that we now, I've been, been able to uncover that Regina's mother, Natalie Wender, who died in 1921, had been hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital. So we see a genetic link, not just to the mother, but also the maternal grandmother. And research in psychology and psychiatry shows that there's some genetic predispositions to certain disorders. And so I think Bobby had a genetic predisposition to paranoia, paranoid personality disorder. There was some uh, genetic tree history to his mother and to his grandmother and also to his biological father. There are a number of reports about how odd Bobby's biological father, Dr. Paul Nemenji, was. And his son, Peter, who would be Bobby's half-brother, eventually committed suicide, mm. uh, who also had mental illness. So on both Bobby's maternal gene pool and his biological father gene pool, you had some genetic predisposition. So starting with that genetic predisposition, you layer on top of that the stress of single parenthood, near poverty, the fame of a 13, 14-year-old being followed and interviewed, you had a perfect storm for the coalescence of of mental illness. When did Bobby begin to pull away from people? What year was that? What, what was happening that he began to really isolate himself? He was always difficult personality to work with, but he was so gifted that people may, you know, gave him Exception. leeway. Mm-hmm. They changed rules so that he would play, because if he played in a tournament, more people would, would contribute, they'd get more sponsorship. So he was so influential that he could bend, bend the rules of tournaments because they wanted him to play. He was so dynamic. He had an international hero iconic image across the world. So I think people always knew he was difficult. But then in 1972, after he won the title, as he was preparing and as the FIDE, the International Chess Federation, was trying to organize the required defense of that title in 1965 against the challenger Anatoly Karpov, Bobby came up with a list of about 100 demands. And the International Chess Federation met most of them, uh, but they couldn't change everything. So he forfeited, and he wrote a letter to fight saying, I resign my chess championship. Then at that point, in 1975, he started to isolate himself further. He didn't participate in formal tournaments, didn't go to chess clubs anymore, uh, started to read more literature. And here's a case where Bobby read generally only chess literature to become such an international you know, genius at chess. But in, in 72 to 75 and in the 80s, he started to read more broadly. He was an intelligent man, and he started to become more of a Renaissance reader. Unfortunately, some of the material he read was anti-Semitic literature. 
So that captured his imagination in terms of the Jewish conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera. And many of his discussions then started to all focus on his anti-Semitism. In Even fact, though he himself was Jewish. Yes, he was Jewish. Uh, and his biological mother was Jewish. His biological father was Jewish. So even friends that he would occasionally see, he would bring the discussion around to anti-Semitism. And his friends wanted to talk about chess or something else. And, you know, he would just overwhelm them by, you know, constantly, you know, circular talking about the Jewish conspiracy. So he started to alienate friends. And, of course, you know, you know, the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community was very offended by his anti-Semitism. Dr. Paterato, why do you think he became anti-Semitic? Where did that come from? That's a question. When I speak about this in public, that's one of the most common questions that I think Bobby associated people who had hurt him in some way or who he had thought hurt or abandoned him with the Jewish label. Mm. So his mom was Jewish. And his mom, at times, although she loved him and really promoted his career and did a lot for him, she wasn't home a lot as a very educated, intelligent woman, woman that Regina would often have intellectual friends at her house to have discussions about politics or Eisenhower, and that Bobby felt isolated from those discussions, which were mainly other Jewish intellectuals in the New York area. So he didn't get to see his mom when she worked, and he really didn't get to see her when she was home because she was having these intellectual parties. At times, according to mm-hmm. Frank Brady's, and you know, not to over, overblow that. Right. I think a big one from a psychological point of view, if we look at the important role of, of abandonment in children, that if his mom physically was not there and his father clearly abandoned him, his biological father, although they met at times, uh, very often he was not there. And so Bobby really did not have a father figure. And that's one reason why his mother promoted Bobby going to the chess clubs because there he met caring men like Jack Collins and Carmine Nigro who became sort of surrogate fathers and chess mentors. So at least for Regina, Bobby's mother, Bobby was in the hands of positive male role models, which he did not have at home. Uh, I think the sense of maybe unconsciously associating abandonment and hurt with folks who were Jewish. But again, right. unless, well, you, we'll inter- unless you really interviewed Bobby at Lent multiple times, we don't know for sure. This is speculation that why the source of his rage uh, went to anti-Semitism. But he also got very angry at the U.S. And one thing that led to his separation from the U.S. was after the 9-11 attacks, on a radio call, he, he was very ecstatic that uh, the World Trade Centers were bombed. And he said, good for the U.S., they deserve that. And I think that then alienated the whole world. Mm. Uh, How did he um, get to a place where he was just that angry with America? What happened in his life? Well, that, well if, you look, if you look at the literature, he was always battling the U.S. Uh, he felt that the U.S. was not supporting him. As is common with folks with paranoid personality disorder, sometimes you try to aggrieve uh, a believed loss or injustice, or you sue. Bobby sued quite a few people, and he never won any of these lawsuits. And so he blamed the U.S. for not giving his uh, case due attention, whether it was the federal courts, whatever court it may have been. So I think he didn't like the U.S. They, he felt they didn't treat him well. They felt they didn't take his case seriously. He, he believes that he put America on the map as an intellectual nation, that he said, well, we were just a football and a baseball country. When he beat Boris Spassky, and chess was a source of pride and it made the the Soviet Union the smartest country in the world because they were best at the smartest game at the world chess. So he felt he did so much for the United States winning that world chess champion. So, Dr. Pantorato, we, we get to a place where he made these demands and he resigned. Bobby Fischer resigned from chess. And then what happened to him? Well, he resigned from the world championship and didn't, you know, defend his title in 1975. So now he was what biographers called the world in this years. Very few people knew where he was. And to get them, he had to go through one of his 
friends who, you know, Claudia McIrell, who screened calls, screened his mail. So he was somewhere in, in L.A., in Pasadena, in Santa Monica. His money ran out. Because uh, he got millions, correct, yes. from the different tournaments he played. Well, he got, he got a, a hefty sum. He gave some of that to the Worldwide Church of God, which was part of being a member of the church. You give, you donate part of your winnings. Uh, so at first he stayed on that campus. But like with everybody else in Bobby's life, eventually he got angry and disillusioned with, with uh, the Worldwide Church of God. Then he left their campus in L.A. and started to live in small motels or rooming houses. His money ran out. Where did he end up uh, on his deathbed? Where did he? he oh, he up? eventually. Uh, we'll talk about that. Eventually, he got full Icelandic citizenship in Iceland and moved there in 2005 and remained there until his death on January 17, 2008. Uh, he, he died from what? Well, Bobby was suspicious of, of doctors, of medicine, of treatments, of surgery. So he started to have kidney problems and pain. Eventually, the pain was so great that he went to the hospital. But he refused surgery. He refused most forms of medical treatment. And then he eventually died from kidney failure. And my final question, do you still play chess? Yes. Not competitively, but I play whenever I can. And I still beat my friends and my family members. But if I went to a chess club, I would be soundly uh, soundly beat by probably the youngest member. But I, I love chess, play whenever I can. And I, I always had. And that's sort of what led me to writing this biography, which, which was not my specialty. All of my other books and my researchers in the study of multicultural counseling and therapy. Then in midlife, at 50, in my 50s, my midlife crisis was to, to re-engage my passion for chess and coalesce it with my passion for biography and for psychology. And if we can coalesce these three specialties and uncover and unveil the mystery that led both to Bobby's genius and perhaps his mental illness, perhaps we can do some good for other prodigies coming along the way. My thanks to Dr. Joseph Punteranto. His book, A Psychobiography of Bobby Fischer, is out now from Charles C. Thomas Publishers at cc.thomas.com. I'd also like to thank my producer, Alan Kanluck. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.